Hello, and welcome to the Canyons Are Calling podcast. I'm Cheryl Strasslin, your host for the show. First of all, I want to thank the people that have sent me pictures for my wall. My room is going to feel so much better when I print them out. I um, haven't actually printed them yet, but I really enjoyed seeing them, and it's going to be fun to have a collage of photos of my fans to look at while I do these intros, because it's really awkward talking to a blank wall. So if you've already sent in a picture, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you still want to send in a picture, you can do that at thecanyonsarecalling at gmail.com. I really just have a hard time doing these intros. I don't know why. <laughs> it's the worst part of doing this podcast, and it's probably the part nobody even gives a shit about. So anyway, <laughs> that being said, with me being the sole producer, editor, researcher, person that does this entire show, if you feel like my time is valuable to you, there are a few ways that you can support me in this project. You can purchase beer glasses and stickers from my website at thecanyonsarecalling.com. You can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com dot com slash the canyons are calling on there I give my supporters the chance to ask people questions before I do interviews I also have monthly canyon chats and it's the first Wednesday of every month for August the Uray Canyon Festival folks have agreed to chat with us about the upcoming Uray Canyon Festival and the canyons in that area so that is super exciting also you can rate and put a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can also do that on Spotify now. So if you like the show, you can go ahead and review and rate the show. That just helps other people find the show and know that it's a quality listen. So if you enjoy it, please do that. Also, I feel canyoneering is better done with friends, so share the podcast with your friends. That would be super awesome. <laughs> you can also join us on our Facebook group page, The Canyons Are Calling, I post more information on there about canyoneering related things and not super active on Instagram, but it is canyons are calling on Instagram if you'd like to follow us there as well. Anyway, enough of me rambling on. Today we're talking with Christopher Hagedorn from Get in the Wild Adventures about his company and his dedicating the last 13 years to canyoneering. So here is my interview with Chris. Enjoy. So today I am here with Chris Hagedorn from Get in the Wild Adventures, and we're just here to talk canyons as usual. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hey there. How's it going? I am great. Awesome. We're getting a little bit of awesome monsoon weather this year in Utah, so that's that's pretty exciting. We yeah, had... it, it definitely it definitely has been pretty uh, pretty amazing. We we had a significant decision a week ago related to the. To the weather which i can share a little bit later but yeah uh it's been been pretty pretty crazy <laughs> so you're up in washington now correct i'm in washington now uh you know we're running trips in both washington and and utah so yeah last week we had a you know, the the big event that hit capitol reef the flood uh you know we we were in a decision making uh you know process that day because we had a trip that we were planning on guiding in, in capital reef um which um fortunately you know we in, we did not do we did it elsewhere uh and in retrospect that was uh definitely a, a great decision after seeing the uh the videos of what tore through capital reef yeah wow that is incredible and good thing that you chose like 
paid attention to the weather and yeah. chose a different area to go to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, these these monsoons here in Utah are just so sporadic in little cells that just hit like a five mile radius or yeah, something. It can be quite impressive to experience. <laughs> Yeah, they're nuts. For people that are out of state and haven't experienced them, they're they're quite wild when we get them. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the outdoors. Yeah, you bet. Um, well, uh, I've kind of been all over the U.S. People ask me where I'm where I'm from, and I really don't know how to answer that anymore because when uh, when I started getting the wild 12 years ago, uh, my wife Melissa and I made a really big decision to. Uh, leave our uh, 4,000 square foot house on five acres of property and move into a 40 foot motorhome. Uh, since we were, you know, operating in both Southern Utah and Western Washington, we decided, you know, that the mobile lifestyle kind of, kind of made sense. So, you know, when people ask that question now, where are you from? Well, it's basically wherever that motorhome is parked is, is where I'm from for the day. But um, uh, born in, born in New York, um, only lived there four years. Um, my father died and my mom moved back to her home state of, um, of Tennessee. Uh, so I grew up, you know, in my youth um, in East Tennessee, Southern Appalachian mountains. So my, you know, my love for the outdoors was, was definitely born um, in the mountains of, uh, of uh, East Tennessee and, you know, spent most of my waking moments out playing and enjoying the outdoors, you know, prior to, you know, the invention of all the electronic devices and everything else that you know, keep kids inside these days. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's where I grew up uh, uh, originally. So if I have to choose a place where I say uh, I'm from, I, I usually will ultimately say uh, the mountains of East Tennessee. Sounds amazing. And Appalachian is on my list. Those mountains are just, they look, I mean, so different than what I'm used to here in Utah, but they look amazing. They're they're beautiful mountains. I mean, uh, kind of kind of kind of funny story. The first time I took my wife Melissa, she's she's born and raised, you know, Green Tree, Washingtonian. Uh, so the first time I took her to East Tennessee and you know brought her up into the mountains, um, and she said, "Well, where where's the mountains?" Um, you know, I said, "Well, we're in the mountains," and it's like these are <laughs> mountains. But, you know, you know, contrasting those to the the rugged you know alpine peaks of the North Cascades and Olympic Mountains. It's like those those were just kind of rolling hills to, to right. her, but, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're very, very, very beautiful in their in their own right. So. Yeah, excited to see them one day. They're on the list. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get into canyoneering? Yeah, well, you know, when I first got into canyoneering, I, I really didn't even know it at the time. I mean, I was a young boy in the Appalachian Mountains, you know, playing in the hollows and gorges of East Tennessee. That's what they call, you know, valleys, you know, and canyons back in that part of the country. So, you know, in, in my youth, I mean, I, I would work my way down some of these pretty amazing canyons, you know, in these deciduous forests and uh you know, scramble and climb and rappel, you know, down waterfalls. Uh, I had no idea I was canyoneering. I mean, I didn't hear the word canyoneering, you know, when I was doing that. I didn't I didn't hear that word for, you know, probably at least another 20 years after I after I was doing that. So uh, so that's, you know, in my mind, you know, as I reflect back on my life, you know, where my canyoneering days, you know, first started. But um, you know, if, if you want to fast forward in time to, 
when I kind of officially, you know, first learned, you know, the word canyoneering and what canyoneering was about, uh, uh, I was actually a, a senior uh, engineering student at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee, and um, we headed out west on a, um, uh, a geology field camp where we were going to spend two weeks, uh, two weeks out west, and we were actually in western Washington and the, near the Nevada border where Notch, Notch Peak is located in the confusion range and spent a week or so uh, doing geologic mapping in that part of the country and as we were approaching the time to return home um, uh, i was actually working as a, uh, a student assistant uh, at that point in the time which mean, meant i was driving one of the vans that all the students were in um, and the conversation came up well <clears throat> you know what route are we going to take on the way home and whole bunch of people said, well, let's go to the Grand Canyon, you know, let's go to the Grand Canyon. We're not that far. We can go check out the Grand Canyon. And of course, uh, as I have always done uh, most, much of my life, you know, I, I pulled out my maps and, you know, started researching and studying maps. And uh, before long, um, I uh, put together an alternate route that I pr proposed uh, to everyone. I said, you know, rather than driving to the Grand Canyon and spending, you know, stopping the vehicle and spending 30 minutes to go, you know, on an overlook and, and look at the canyon, why don't we actually experience this part of the country? And uh, so I put together this route, you know, that took us, took us through, uh, you know, Escalante and Boulder and Glen Canyon and uh, Hanksville, Dirty Devil Robbers Roost, Capitol Reef, you know, Canyonlands arches, and and we did a vote. The, the vote was basically Grand Canyon or, or Christopher's uh, uh, plan, and uh, everybody kind of uni unanimously voted for my plan. And um, and wow, that was a life-changing experience uh, because uh, that's where I first got to experience my further, first Southern Utah, you know, canyoneering route and, and came to learn, you know, what's you know what the what canyoneering actually was i'd never heard it before i had i had no clue you know what is what is canyoneering so again yeah i i had actually done canyoneering earlier in my life before i knew what it was called i guess but um uh, that's the first place i actually did it in southern utah and and after i'd actually learned you know uh what that word was all about so on that trip you were able to stop and actually do some hiking and canyoneering yeah we were we we actually okay. got to experience uh you know, two, two different routes. It was pr pretty amazing. Um, at that time, you know, Lake Powell was, was actually a, pa a, a lake. Uh, so <laughs> when, we were, when we were crossing over in the vicinity of, of, of height, uh, um, you know, there was a camping area there uh, and you could actually camp right on the, camp right on the lake there. Uh, that, that camping area still exists. There's not any water there anymore. Uh, but that was one of the first locations was uh, uh, in that area that you know, basically the first first route that I had ever you know explored in my life was was right there in the Glen Canyon area. That's awesome. Yeah, huh. yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's kind of the evolution of of how that part of my canyoneering world uh, began. You know, the the Washington world, uh, how that began is. Um, yeah, I can certainly share some of that. That's a different, a little bit of a different and unique. Yeah, story. I was going to be like, okay, then life happened <laughs> for a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, share some of that story because you said that you wanted to be an astronaut and we're in the space field. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So I didn't mention that. Yeah. So when when I was twelve years old, I 
I discovered what I wanted to do for a career. And uh, I've always been adventurous and I wanted the grand adventure. You know, I, I'm old enough. I got to experience and watch some of the Apollo, you know, Moon Saturn V launches from Cape Canaveral, Florida. And of course, as a little boy, you know, that kind of blew me away. And, you know, the amazement of actually being able to adventure into space. And, you know, I decided at 12, you know, that's that's what I wanted to do with my life. So from that point forward, I started digesting every bit of information I could, you know, related to space travel. And, uh, you know, when I got <clears throat> got into high school, all the math and science courses that I could take. And then, of course, you know, once I discovered, well, you know, here's some possible paths to become an astronaut, uh, you know, I went on and got, uh, you know, both uh, bachelor's and master's degrees you know, in engineering, because that was one path, you know, to, to get into uh, being an astronaut. I, I actually started out uh, 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 with a degree uh, path in aeronautical engineering, uh, ended up actually graduating in, in geotechnical um, engineering. So, uh, and then from that point forward, you know, I was on this 30 year journey uh, of doing everything I could to achieve that goal. And, you know, after graduating with my master's, got multiple jobs, you know, as a as an actual practicing engineer in the private sector, and then uh, worked in, in public service, um, you know, in government service as both an engineer and a public works director uh, and a city manager in the state of Washington. Uh, you know, matter of fact, I, I worked up in Skagit County, um, which has the Skagit River, the third largest river in the Western U.S. and Part of my position involved, um, I was actually the operations chief for the flood fight on the Skagit River, which, you know, periodically when the river flooded there, you put together a team of two to three thousand volunteers and packed sandbags to help protect the downtown of the of the city. And that was that was part of, you know, what my job was uh, back then. And it evolved into actually helping to create the first um, permanent flood wall for the for the city of uh, city of Mount Vernon, which is in place now, so um, so yeah, that was part of my path. Applied to NASA uh, multiple times, uh, and then in 2009, when the U.S. economy crashed, uh, I ended up having what I call now a, a midlife epiphany. You know, I was you know, here. Here I was. You know, uh, you know. An individual with a master's in engineering, you had been working about 15 years in, in, in engineering, and all of a sudden, boom, I got laid off from my job, you know, like so many Americans did at that time. Uh, my wife was actually a uh, biologist for the Washington State Department of Transportation. A few months later, she got laid off from her job. Uh, so here both of us were, you know, you know, unemployed. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I applied for jobs, you know, in the engineering field a few more times, uh, 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 city administrator for the city of Leavenworth, Washington. And then my final was actually down in uh, California, Laguna Beach. Um, I got actually got a job offer for public works director at the city of Laguna Beach, California, and I turned it down. And that ultimately was the springboard you know, to get in the wild. It's like, you know, do I really want to do this engineering stuff uh, anymore? I mean, the engineering and all that was essentially a means to an end. I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, this was a path that I took, uh, you know, and I came to the realization at that time, you know, the U.S. didn't even have a spaceship anymore. The space shuttle has, had been retired. We were relying on Russians to get into space. And I, and I had the realization, you know, for the first time in my life, I'm probably not going to 
achieve that dream in my life. And when I, when that realization, you know, really hit me and, and sunk in, you know, is at that point that I said, you know, I don't want to do this engineering stuff anymore. Uh, and at that point, I'd been teaching outdoor education for nonprofits for about 16 years. And I said, you know, I, I love the outdoors. I love teaching and, and guiding and instructing. You know, maybe I can start a business and earn a few dollars. And 12 years later, you know, here I am. I mean, that's that's kind of how it all started, you know, from this dream of a great adventure of being an astronaut to completely and totally 100 percent immersing my life in canyoneering. I mean, that has been my life for the last 12 years. That's incredible. Yeah, that is really, really awesome. Yeah. So that's that's essentially you know, the story <laughs> of how, how getting wild ultimately started and kind of the path that, that led me there. So let, tell us a little bit about Get in the Wild. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I started Get in the Wild, again, you know, 12 years ago, you know, I kind of I knew early on, you know, where I wanted the guide, at least generally, and kind of what the mission for the company was. I, um, you know, after driving across the United States, you know, back and forth um, uh, over 60 times, I had visited it, you know, basically every state in the country, and I had quickly come to my two favorite landscapes in the country, you know, and one was definitely Colorado Plateau, Southern Utah Canyon country. And the other one was the North Cascades, you know, in Washington state. And I knew those were two places, those were two places I knew very, very well, uh, two places I, I really wanted to, you know, operate the company in. Uh, so that part came fairly easy. The, the next part of, of it was to help facilitate, you know, experiences at off the beaten path locations. You know, I, I didn't want to go where everyone else was going. I, I wanted to really be able to experience the real wilderness and, you know, help facilitate these experiences for people at, at places that they that they couldn't go um, on their own. So in Washington, you know, I mean, the, the uh, of course the most popular, you know, mountain climb in Washington is, is Mount Rainier, which uh, if you've ever experienced Rainier, you know, it's kind of like a cattle train going up that mountain. There's so many people. It's such a popular mountain. Uh, but the North, North Cascades was, um, was an enigma. You know, there's, there's no easy way to get into the fabled picket range. You know, I mean, it, it, it took six to eight days of carrying heavy, you know, literally 80, 90 pound backpacks over, you know, you know, week-long expeditions just to get into those mountains. So, so I knew, you know, that was my off the beaten path location. And in, in Washington uh, was the North Cascade. And actually the first, first course that Get in the Wild ever taught uh, was an Alpine mountaineering course um, in the North Cascades, uh, which ended up with a summit uh, of Mount Baker. Um, a little bit easier in the uh, in the in Washington to decide where we were going to guide in Utah. You know, pretty much all of Southern Utah, I think, is amazing, and I think you could start a guide service just about anywhere you wanted. Uh, but for me, it was a process of elimination of where I was not going to guide and where I was not going to go. So I, I pulled out my maps and I quickly eliminated Moab, Canyonlands, Arches, Zion, Bryce. You know, all these places that have loads of people, loads of guide services. Um, and I, I, I quickly realized, well, there's one place just about geographic center of the Colorado Plateau that has just as much to offer with one big difference. There are no people. And that's how I ended up 
at the Dirty Devil Robbers Roost Wilderness, uh, uh, where where we started our canyoneering guiding and instructing. Just so happens, yeah, there happens to be this little town of Hanksville that's the closest town. <laughs> uh but yeah hanksville is not what brought me to the area it was the wilderness the six million acres of just spectacular and amazing and uncharted wilderness you know in that area uh, and that area also carries one special protection that most people have never heard of in their life you know when i when i share this with people that come out with us you know I don't know that I've ever heard anybody that had, has heard about this protection, but you know, robber's roost is, uh, is actually protected for solitude. Uh, one of very few places in the lower 48 where solitude is actually protected. You know, and what, what does that mean for us as a guide service? It means we're not allowed to cross paths with another group. So needless to say, you know, I found my place of off the beaten path in Washington and uh, and now in Utah. So I knew, you know, where we wanted to operate the business. You know, I knew what we wanted to do. It's essentially two primary facets to the to the business model as far as our operations. You know, one is guided adventure trips and the other is wilderness education courses. You know, the, the demographic is very different for those two. I mean, the guided adventure trips, you know, in Utah, you know, it's typically mom and dad and a few kids like this past spring, mom and dad and a few kids coming down on vacation to visit Utah's Mighty Five, you know, national parks. They're looking for, you know, something really cool and fun to do and they want a guide to lead them there safely. Uh, that's a typical demographic there. You know, the, 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 the courses you know, are a little bit of a different animal, but that's typically you know, people that already have some connection to the outdoors, you know, maybe they're hikers or bikers or kayakers or climbers, um, and they've heard about canyoneering and they, you know, want to learn, you know, the skills, you know, to help build their toolbox so they can, you know, safely travel through canyons and, and hopefully bring, you know, friends and family and others through canyons. So, you know, th those are the, you know, kind of the, I guess, the core components of how, how getting get the wild was built. You guys also offer pothole classes, if I remember right? Yeah, or, we, we offer a variety of, of courses. So yeah, in Utah, you know, we do, you know, standard um, introductory level courses, intermediate courses, advanced courses, you know, okay. on the more advanced courses side, we have, you know, the pothole escape course, advanced anchors and rigging course, canyon rescue course, canyon leadership uh, course. Um, and then in Washington, you know, we do, um, uh, four-day introduction to Swiftwater Canyoneering course, as well as a four-day advanced uh, Swiftwater Canyoneering course, uh, and then also uh, an Alpine Alpine Canyoneering course uh, in the North Cascades. Can we talk just briefly a little bit about the differences between like the Dry Utah Canyons and the Class C Washington Canyons? Yeah, yeah, abs absolutely. Uh, what would you like to know? Well, I feel like they're completely different sports. <laughs> um, have, have, you, have you experienced both? I've done a few in Uray, um, Class C okay. Canyons. Um, and we thought that we were getting practice <laughs> at this little canyon here called Benson Creek. But it was like a fourth of the water flow that even yeah, the yeah. low water in Uray had. <laughs> so it was just a completely different a completely different experience. The hydraulics are different. Oh, we also went to Costa Rica. Yeah. Um, and did oh, okay. some classy stuff there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So did you find Costa Rica uniquely different from like Ure? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, way different. Yeah, so it was so, a little yeah. bit warmer, but it was still cold. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 exactly. So, so, so for us, you know, living, you know, living a mobile lifestyle, um, you know, uh, my wife Melissa, being from Pacific Northwest, she she can't handle the desert too long because there's it's not green right so that really you know causes her to go a little stir crazy if she's in an area without green too long so you know one of the biggest things just on the surface for us i mean it's like you know we just transitioned a few weeks ago uh from uh utah you know up into washington uh and it's like i mean it's just such a dramatic shock to the system i mean if you've been living you know in the middle of the desert for months, you know, hardly interacting with other human beings, you know, besides the ones that are coming out on trips and courses, you know, with you, and then all of a sudden, you appear in this lush, you know, verdant, you know, green, just amazing, you know, alpine environment. I mean, it just, I mean, it's just so overwhelming, you know, the contrasts, you know, and the and the differences. Of course, for us, a big part of that is you know, living a mobile lifestyle. It's it's hard to survive in 100 degree temperatures. Uh, uh, in southern Utah. Uh, so when we come up here, you know, like right now where I'm sitting right here in the middle of the Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest, it's about 65 degrees and sunshine. So it's 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 pretty, pretty amazing. So just with that as a kind of a you know high level, you know, of the areas, I mean, uh, I guess some of the most significant contrasts to me between the lo two locations, you know, you know, obviously the geology is very, very different. I mean, you know, Utah, we're talking about, you know, mostly, you know, horizontal lying, you know, sandstones and silt stones of varied hues of, you know, pink, orange, red, you know, white, uh, except for that few areas that have been uplifted, like, you know, water pocket fold and San Rafael swell. Um, uh, and then you go to Wash Washington, and you're surrounded by you know mostly uh, igneous igneous rocks, uh, you know you know of you know granitic nature, you know like diorites and 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 so forth. Uh, so very very different rock types. It's all been you know uplifted by volcanic activity of the you know Pacific Plate, you know merging under the North America Plate, which obviously results in the volcanoes. So just a dramatically different uh landscape from from that perspective but you know uh, obviously I, I guess the single biggest difference is um you know basically everything in washington is class c right i mean you know if you have a, a valley between two uh two ridges um you know typically you're going to have you know at the top of these headwaters you're going to have snow and ice and glaciers, you know, that melt off, you know, into rivers. Uh, so you're going to have, you know, flowing water, you know, hydraulics, you know, you mentioned URA. Um, you know, we, we'd love to teach a class C, you know, canyoneering course in Utah, but there's just really no place that we found that checks all the boxes. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can go to Zion and you can go to URA and you can do waterfall repels, right? But that doesn't encompass everything that class c has to offer i mean once you get in up into the cascades i mean cascades are you know arguably you know 
you know, one of the best areas, if not the best area in the lower 48 for class C canyoneering, because you actually have, you know, hydraulics, you know, I mean, you're not just doing waterfall repels. I mean, you're doing, you know, you're doing slides and you're doing jumps in the pools of water and you're having to analyze, you know, the various hydraulic components, you know, for, for safety and risk management. So uh, needless to say, yeah, ha hazards and risks go up, you know, significantly, you know, in this environment in contrast to the um, class A and B, you know, canyons in, in Utah. So it's a, and it's just, just a wonderful, you know, to be able to experience both of these worlds, uh, you know, being able to travel back and forth. And I guess one, one of the other really major differences for me, you know, um, you know, having, you know, coming, coming from, you know, the roost and the swell and dirty devil is, um, as I'm sure you're aware, that area tends to be much skinnier, tighter, you know, PG, slots so they're much more physical you know and and that's something that i really enjoy because you know as, as a background with a background in, in climbing and mountaineering i really like the climbing aspect so uh you know as you're working your way through those canyons you know you're going to be doing a lot of scrambling and climbing down climbing you know uh stemming you know working your way over and around obstacles um you know that, that that's very unique there in contrast uh, you know to most of the Pacific Northwest canyons, you know, where you don't have, you know, that level of you know, actually climbing and squeezing through these really skinny spaces. So uh, those are some of the biggest, you know, I guess differences that I see you know, between the two areas. I think you explained it really well. You talking about hydraulics reminded me of the time when we were in Costa Rica, we knew that there was rain coming. So we did a canyon with a group of friends one day and it was just my husband and I with the group of people. And then the rest of the people, we were going to go to the hot springs with my friends the next day while it was raining. <laughs> the group that I was with, or like half of the group went with another guide into a different canyon. And then the, the day that it was raining, they went into the canyon that we did the first day while we were at the hot springs. <laughs> And so there was this one spot where the hydraulics were like circling and they had to like, we could just kind of swim around it and go around the log or whatever, but they had to like jump and like miss this hydraulic pool in order to safely like get through it or they would have got like sucked under. Right. And I was like, we totally did not have that experience the day before. <laughs> And then I was like, I couldn't believe that the guide would have taken them to the canyon and when on the day it was raining because in Utah, when it rains, like you just don't go to canyons, right? right? And I know that in Uray, I was with Tom and it's raining and he's like putting his wetsuit on to do the canyon. And I was like, you feel okay with this song? <laughs> and he was like, well, do you want to eat lunch or something? Oh <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's raining. Like... Yeah. We would never, ever be putting on a wetsuit while it's raining to get into a canyon in Utah. Um, yeah. so those were, you know, completely different elements. But then also the guide told me later that my friends were like, we're swift water search and rescue. We know what we're doing. We're totally trained. We're capable of doing this canyon in higher water situations. And so they talked the guide into taking them through the canyon and they all had a blast and everyone was fine. But. Yeah. The water levels were definitely way higher the second day than they were the first. Yeah, well, that's that, that's definitely a, a great observation because that is another really important difference between you know the, the two locations as you as you mentioned. Yeah, southern Utah 
flash floods can happen extremely rapidly. I mean, literally in a matter of matter of minutes, you know, mm -hmm. because you have such a impermeable, you know, geology, you know, and soil. I mean, mostly rock, right, or muds or silts. So, you know, it hits the ground, sheet flows off rapidly. Whereas in Pacific Northwest, you know, it's kind of like a big sponge. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if it hasn't rained for the while. I mean, in the summertime, it rarely rains in the Pacific Northwest. So when it does, I mean, the ground is just like a big sponge. It's going to soak it up, you know, right? I mean, when I was, mm -hmm. you know, operations chief for the Skagit River flood fight, I mean, you know, we would be monitoring um, the NOAA uh, hydrographs and, you know, we could see, you know, a peak flood, you know, occurring, you know, two to three days in the future, I mean, in the future, right? So, I mean, how, how could we, you know, put together two to 3,000 volunteers to build them? A sandbag wall in Utah, you know, if the flood's coming in 20 minutes, right? I mean, you have much, don't have right. much time, but uh, in this environment, since the ground is so permeable, you know, uh, as long as the ground's not already saturated, you know, uh, that peak can take you know a long time to get there. Uh, you know, if if you're in the rainy season and the ground's already saturated, which you know most times you're not going to be canyoneering and most of the canyons out here anyway during the winter during those conditions then then the yeah. next rain if the ground's saturated yeah then peaks can happen very very rapidly but yeah not in prime canyoneering season in the summertime nice so you operate in washington july and august because that's peak awesome summertime and then utah the rest of the year yeah, so Utah uh, is basically March through November and uh, Washington into June through first of September. You know, and that you know that those can vary just a little bit. You know, depending upon the the weather, obviously. Yeah. Awesome. You also mentioned something about yoga in the wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah, my, my wife, Melissa, has been a yogi since she was 10 years old, um, and she uh, actually um, uh, has has been in the commercial side of yoga as well. She's a certified uh, instructor and trainer, and she's uh, you know, coordinated uh, a number of large yoga events. So, of course, when I started you know, get in the wild, you know, one of the first things she said was, well, you know, I think we can take yoga and marry it with these amazing, you know, landscapes and, uh, and, uh, you know, create a, a pretty cool thing. And, and, and we actually, we actually have, so we, we created a yoga in the wild program. We do both single day, uh, and multi-day retreats in, in both Utah and Washington. We actually just had one, um, uh, back in, back in May, um, uh, which we had the Utah Office of Tourism, some of their staff uh, come out with us and uh, a variety of writers from across the country. They actually just uh, published um, a story about it. And I think it's called Spoken Blossom Magazine in Colorado. Uh, but the yoga in the wild, actually, I, I, I was not a yogi and I'm still not a yogi. I know more about yoga than I did due to my marriage. You know, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's actually a lot of fun. I mean, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, you know, uh, you know taking the yoga basically out of the studio and into the wild, this kind of our tagline for that. So that's, yeah, that's one of the other things we do. Um, we also do Wild West and Outlaw tours, you know, at Robber's Roost, visiting, you know, some of the hideouts and and, and locations, you know, with the Wild Bunch, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid and others, you know, hit out from the law. We do some photography um, trips and, and workshops, uh, you know, so yeah, yeah, a little bit of a, a repertoire of things, but, um, but canyoneering is definitely the, the primary, primary focus uh, of the business. Mm -hmm. 
Nice. What are some of your favorite canyons in each area? Yeah, well, you know, I I, um, I figured you was going to ask me that question, and I gave it gave it a lot of thought. I really did. Um, you know, people ask me that all the time. You know, <laughs> what's your favorite canyon? Um, and I'm sad to say, I, I I don't. I'm not ever able to answer them because I really just don't have a favorite canyon. I've got. I've never met a canyon that I didn't like, quite honestly. I mean, they're all so amazing and beautiful and, and unique. Um, so I, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, my favorite canyon is any canyon that I can do with my wife, Melissa, is my favorite canyon. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just married my canyoneering partner. Canyoneering <laughs> with my husband is so much more fun than just, yeah, you know, out with just some random people yeah, yeah. she she you know she uh she's not a big well she's not a big technical canyoneer she loves she loves the canyons um but she's she's got a a, a really definite limit when it comes to um, exposure and and heights you know so she's yeah. not real into the for the big free repels for you know example so in general she's not allowed to come on any of my trips because um you know her her coping mechanism for fear of heights um is profanity um and and of course you know that you know, that, that doesn't wouldn't go well with our guests right so, Defiance, right. <laughs> uh, so, so this past season in utah um, she actually only did one trip with us uh, we had the pleasure of taking out utah's governor and first family for the second time actually uh, on spring break um and um we talked about canyons uh, and they chose a canyon that uh, Melissa was was able to do. And I was uh, very grateful for that because she, you know, being a biologist, she's really into all of the, you know, the flora and the fauna and Native American history, uh, you know, and all those elements of things. She can really, you know, weave all these really beautiful things you know, into a canyoning experience beyond what I can do. So I always yeah. love having her, you know, with me. So I was happy to at least get her out on that uh, that one uh, experience this past spring. <laughs> Good for her for still going, even though she doesn't like the heights, and then knowing what limits that she is acceptable to do, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She she knows she knows her her limits uh, uh, as I, as I do. I mean, I uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I know you know that's that's definitely one of the. I, I, I have found probably one of the most important elements to keep us safe, you know, and I know you might talk about safety later, but as, as knowing what our personal, you know, limits mm -hmm. are, because uh, because over my years of canyoneering, the, I pick on a couple of diff different demographics all the time. And, and the one that tends to get into trouble the most tends to be young males, about 18 to 25. Um, you know, they, they tend to have this invincibility complex, I call it, you know, their strength and agility carries them through a lot. You know, but they don't, you know, always have the wisdom, you know, to know where their limits are, you know, which sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. gets them into into trouble. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's really important for all of us is knowing knowing those limits. Yeah, yeah, that's well said because yeah, they think they're invincible, and like wisdom and life experience teaches you a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, uh, for sure. Um, you wanted to talk a little bit about leadership in canyons. Yeah, yeah. So leadership is is an element of canyoneering. Uh, well, and you know, 
of exploring the outdoors and technical sports in general that's always been really important to me um you know and when i started in the canyoneering world and really kind of got really deep into the canyoneering world you know, I, I found that there were some really significant differences between what canyoneers were being taught uh, and what I had been taught. Uh, you know, bef before I actually got into canyoneering, you know, I was a uh, an alpine, you know, mountaineer and and rock climber, and you know, in in that world. Um, leadership and team building are kind of they're built into everything that you do so for example i mean if you're on a glacier in the north cascades you're going to be attached to by a rope to multiple other people so as you move you know up the glacier towards the top of the mountain you're always going to be part of a team because you're connected to one another by a rope. So that mentality, I think, is, is kind of instilled in that world because it's part and parcel of what you do, at least if you, you know, climb glaciers safely. I mean, uh, that ten, that's usually, at least from my perspective, one of the primary roles of going on a glacier is, is to rope up. Not everybody does that. Um, but once you've seen these huge, you know, 200, 250 foot cracks, you could throw a semi truck in it and swallow it up. Um, you come to realize, well, you know, I think a rope's a pretty good, pretty good idea. But great idea. But, but anyway, that, that world, you know, that you know, I I was first exposed to, and then of course, you know, in um, you know the government service and engineering jobs that I was a part of, you know, I was always part of teams. Leadership was very important, so I, I had this really strong background in in team building and. And, and leadership um, that has always been, you know, something that's been really important to me. And, and in the canyoneering world, I, I tended to find, you know, at least in the early years that a lot of that was, was missing, uh, you know, particularly like, I mean, if you look at Utah canyoneers, most of the routes that you do are, are day trips, right? So, you know, you're, you're getting out with a day pack and you're descending a canyon and you're done you know, before the end of the day and you, and you go home. Uh, whereas a lot of these trips, you know, that I would been exposed to, you know, in the mountaineering world, for example, were multi-days, you know, as I talked about, you know, week-long trips up in the pickets in the North Cascades. So, you know, having a, a really defined uh, leadership structure for everything that you do was just an essential part of having a smooth, tr smooth safe trip. Um, you know, I, I found that out really early on. And in the canyoneering world, I just really didn't see, uh, I didn't really see, you know, that too much. So uh, I, I remember the first canyon leadership course I took, um, you know, there were several students you know, that were asking questions, well, you know, why do we, why do we even need a leader? What's the purpose of a leader? I mean, you know, I go out canyoneering all the time and we're just a disparate group of individuals that all join up and, you know, go have fun in the canyons, you know, but we don't ever have a a leader why, why do we do one need one uh well i think if you if you spend any time kind of just looking at you know uh, problems you know accidents that occur I, i've been i've been reading you know accidents in north mountain american near mountaineering for you know over probably 25 years that was one of the you know early best resources you know that i had to actually look at you know these accidents that occurred in the back country and 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 kind of the analysis you know what what caused these things to go wrong and a lot of them you know came back to a lack of lack of leadership and and i think you know just if you look at all the different elements of putting a safe 
you know, trip together, you know, from the pre-planning, you know, and logistics, you know, at home before you ever leave home to uh, who's going to be the members of your group. You know, did you, you, you go meet all, meet them all on, you know, on a Facebook or meetup group and you're getting out in the Canyon with them for the first time, you know, that's a little bit different than if you have a group of friends that have been going out canyoneering, you know, for, you know, months or years and you know each other very well, you know, um, if you're getting out there with people that you don't know, it's like you're, you're making, you're making a variety of different assumptions, you know, yeah. how your, how your group is going to, you know, move safely, you know, through a Canyon. So, you know, giving some thought to, to leadership, you know, which is, is a, you know, essentially at its core about the ability to you know, motivate and inspire others uh, to contribute to the success of a common group of objectives. So many things goes into that. And I think just, just kind of putting on that hat and looking at it from that perspective, um, you know, is really important, you know, for, um, uh, facilitating safety engineering. So, um, that's why I just wanted to have right. a, a little conversation about that. A leader definitely makes, I'm, I've led a lot of changes. <laughs> um, mm. but you, have more responsibility i feel like in my mind you're you're making sure there's a first aid kit you're making sure there's extra webbing and repeats and you're making sure that everybody has helmets and you're making sure that there's maps and and you have the beta and i definitely will pick my crew depending on what canyon that i'm gonna do i'm not gonna go on facebook and be like i'm doing imlay tomorrow who wants to go i'm gonna make sure that i know these people have solid skills to get through that canyon if mm -hmm. I'm doing Diana's throne or spry, maybe like a beginner Canyon. Yeah, sure. I'll take a newbie and a beginner that I don't know, but Canyon's like heaps Imlay, like more technical skills needed. I'm definitely picking a solid crew and making sure that I know that they have the skills to get through. And then I'm making sure that somebody has, you know, walkie talkie, personal safety beacon, um, all the things that you need to have. And then you go on your day. But if yeah, you know ab absolutely. And um, all that stuff, like when something goes wrong, you might may not have those things. So yeah, that's definitely very absolutely. important. And absolutely. And you know, there's that's that's I think a, a really important way to operate. And you know, there's there's lots of groups, of course, out there that don't operate. You know, that way. And um, you know, s s being connected, you know, with Hanksville Search and Rescue, for example, in Washington, I mean, I see, you know, day in, day out, you know, the variety of accidents that come in and, you know, talk to, you know, Search and Rescue uh, volunteers. And, you know, at, at, I mean, you, I'm sure you heard of the recent, you know, Sandthrax um, um, rescue that occurred, you know, not long ago. Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you look uh, at mo most of these things, I mean, se se several years ago in, in Constrict 9, um, you know, in the Poison Canyons in Utah, there uh, was a group, you know, that all met on meetup. And, uh, none of them really knew each other. Huge group, 35 pe people. Uh, so just what? like the sand, just, just like the Sandthrax group, you know, group size, probably a consideration. Uh, and then one of the repels, you know, in the canyon, uh, there was nobody monitoring it, you know, so it was essentially clip and go, clip and go, clip and go, clip uh, the webbing broke and the person fell 90 feet and you know shattered their pelvis survived you know but what's the easy solution there i mean no one was monitoring the anchor right right uh, you had a bunch of, of, of beginners you know a whole lot of them right 
and nobody is stationed there, you know, you know, monitoring, you know, that anchor station for every person that goes down. So, so yeah, uh, that, that's why I think it's just, it's, it's really an important piece of the, the puzzle. I, I, I've seen more emphasis on that, you know, by groups uh, out there, which is really awesome. And it's just, again, a really important part of keeping everyone safe. And uh, it sounds like you can appreciate that as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I personally feel like 12 people is a big group in yeah. some canyon situations. Right. And I felt like BLM tried to limit. I thought that they had a 12 person limit. So it'd be great if people would like adhere to those types of things. Do you know if they do? Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's one of those things. I mean, uh, you know, as a as a guide, you know, commercial guides service, you know, it's our responsibility, you know, obviously to know all the laws and regulations, you know, we have to have, you know, special recreation permits and commercial use authorizations to operate, you know, on public land. So, you know, we, we know the details, you know, inside and out. And, and sadly, the, you know, the, the regulations and rules, you know, vary greatly, you know, from one place to the other. So, I mean, even, even if you look, I mean, if you look at, you know, we're talking about, Utah BLM. If you look at the you know Richfield field office, of which has a uh, a field station in Hanksville, um, uh, and then you look at Robert's Roost, you know the Robert's Roost, the the maximum limit total number of people per group is twelve. Uh, but if you go down the road to North Wash, which is managed by the same BLM office, um, you know the uh, the maximum number is fifty. Wow. <laughs> uh, so uh, okay, yeah, that, that, that can that can that can vary great, greatly. Um, you know, some of the state parks don't have any limits on numbers at all. So you know, canyoneering is, is occurring at you know some of, for example, Utah uh, state parks. Uh, they have no limits at all. I mean, you know, on on numbers. But I mean, the one number that tends to be you know more common than others. That's that's our number. You know, in Washington with Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest. Um, North Cascades, uh, as well, you know, as you know, Utah, San Rafael, Swell, Robertsers, that number is 12 most places, but not all places. Hmm. Yeah, and I still feel like, you know, sometimes that's a big group. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that sand tracks deal was, were you a part of that rescue or were you gone by then? I had actually just left, uh, so I wasn't I wasn't there, and you know it, it's not the first time that's happened there. That that you know at least what's been reported is what the contributing factors were. I mean that's not the first time a navigational error has led somebody into Sandthrax when they thought they were going to Leprechaun to bring their kids on their first you know canyoneering outing. It's it's happened multiple times uh, before there. Um, and uh, you know that that you know that you know, and again you know that's just that's just obviously information that's read from the media. I haven't heard talked to anybody firsthand uh, about that, but yeah, not the not the first time. <laughs> As somebody that has been a guide and an avid outdoors person and loves these canyons and want to take my kids, my grandkids out, yeah. like I'm going to take them to a place I've already been. I'm not going to be like, hey, follow me to some place I have no clue yeah, where I'm going. Um, so I wish that the youth leaders would follow that same practice. But yeah, well, uh, I, I agree. <laughs> Sometimes they they hire us. Um, <laughs> you know, we we've nice. we've, we've taken a lot of um, youth groups, you know, Boy Scout groups, etc., uh, out before. But 
Um, obviously, they like to do it on their own as, as well, which is which is great. And I think you know a lot of them have the skills to do so, but obviously yeah. sometimes not. <laughs> There's a book about one of those tragedies. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't want to waste any more of your time. Is there anything else that you want to touch base on before I go to the questions I ask everybody? Um, you know, I think I think one thing that I, I just wanted to share a little bit about is kind of the question, why why do you canyoneer? Why do you like canyoneering? And, um, <laughs> and 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 that's probably one of the one of the more important questions for me personally at this juncture in my life i mean when when i was you know young you know it was it was all about the the adventure the exploration you know the unknown you know uh my my interest in going to the space you know that was all you know part and parcel of that uh and that still remains you know just my passion for i think facilitating you know these once in a lifetime experiences for people that couldn't otherwise experience them on their own i mean that's that's a lot of what i'm doing you know right now is yeah, I mean, a lot of these groups that come out with us, you know, from all over the U.S. and the world, you know, they've never done canyoneering before. I mean, a lot of them don't even know what canyoneering is. They just heard about, you know, there's some cool way to go explore a canyon. And, you know, to be able to facilitate those experiences, you know, for individuals, I, I think is um, really, really important uh, to me. You know, at the end of the day, you know, as as each of them has have overcome their own unique, you know, challenges or fears uh you know and at the end of the day they they see this just incredible sense of pride and accomplishment that wow you know if you would ask me at the beginning of the day i would have never believed that i i could have done you know what i just just did and and that's what keeps me going i think from day to day in canyoneering you know even if i'm leading the same route it's like every group is unique and every group is different and but at the end of the day you know that that sense of amazement and, and awe uh, and accomplishment uh, that I see on you know people's faces you know that they were able to make these successes that you know they would have never imagined is, is just really pretty special to me and I think you know going beyond that another another step further um, I also have a, a great passion for facilitating experiences for those that are you know with disabilities or that maybe are disadvantaged you know in some capacity. Uh, in life, um, you know, last, what was it, last fall, I brought out um, an individual in his 70s that had Parkinson's disease, you know, and he told me, he, he said, Christopher, you know, I, I, I think this is going to be my, my last great adventure, you know, of my life, you know, before I lose my ability to really, you know, do anything like this again. Uh, and to be put in a position where you're taking somebody on a experience like this that's communicating that to you that you know and, and he, he he's obviously i mean he's trembling you know with his parkinson he has some speech difficulties i mean and at the end of the day to see the smile on his face and sense of accomplishment that this individual achieved is just you know really you know warms your heart i mean it's very humbling and and very inspiring um i think last fall we also had a a group of folks that one of them uh had cancer and you know she was probably mid 40s and going through chemotherapy she you know was been on the weak side you know uh, actually i think she had completed chemotherapy you know like a month or so before so she was still weak and uh 
but she had just this incredible indomitable spirit inside that you know I really want to experience this I want to be able to do this uh, and she actually came out with us for three days in a row and and while she might have been a little bit slower you know not moving as fast she she did it you know and and was uh, is what successful um, at doing that uh, I also brought out um, two two men in their 70s that were retired that had both recently lost their wives and they connected through some group you know I guess for uh, you know helping people through you know the grief process of losing a spouse that they had lived with you know most of their life and they connected in this group and they actually came out with us on a trip to Bears Ears um, and you know and they're there, you know, experiencing the wild and these amazing landscapes to help heal themselves, you know, inside. And that's that's just so special, you know, to 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 see that. And then on the disability side, I mean, yeah, I I've taken out a whole host of people with you know hip replacements, knee replacements. Uh, uh, if you're familiar with Eric Weinmayer, the the blind man that was the first uh, human being to summit all seven of the highest peaks in the world a few week a few years ago he came out with us at robber's roost with his family and you know i helped guide him on two on two different canyoneering routes two separate days and it just blows you away i mean you know most of us have a challenge enough of a challenge working our way down a canyon with two eyes you right. know, and here's here's this guy that's blind you know that's working his way down you know the canyon and it's like it's just um, again to be able to facilitate you know these you know experiences and uh, for people you know that wouldn't otherwise be able to do things on their own um, is personally you know what keeps me coming back each each day and and why I do what I do uh, you know, I guess the last point I might mention a little little different, but you know, when I took you know Utah governor out here and his family in the spring, at the end of the day, he said, Christopher, you know, this is the longest that I've gone since I was elected governor that I haven't got a text message or answered my call because I didn't have service. <laughs> you know, so, so I mean getting people away, getting people away, you know, from the modern technologies, you know, is is another element of, of that, you know, that I think our, our human soul, you know, really, you know, has a longing for, you know, whatever it might be. But for me personally, you know, and for getting the wild, you know, as a company, being able to facilitate these things, uh, at least today at this snapshot in my life, uh, is why I canyoneer. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember when I was guiding, like, watching the people transform through the day in the canyon, to me, was way better than the paycheck that I got <laughs> at the end of the week. Like, yeah, that exactly. to me was just why I got up in the morning. It was, it was really incredible. Yeah. I kind of miss it. <laughs> sometimes think about going back to it very part-time but i'm so busy with imlay and now the podcast <laughs> yeah and for like, sure it's been white so <laughs> yeah um, anyway and you know i i just thought there actually was one other thing i i think and, and this one isn't very very long but i i think it's an important one so back when i first started getting the wild um you know, I was doing uh, obviously a, a lot of recon, you know, exploring new places that I would take guests and students. So actually the first year that we opened operations in Southern Utah, 
Um, I was uh, planning to do a recon of a canyon off the Henry Mountains with my wife. And as always, you know, I was I was studying the studying the weather, you know, several days out. And um, the forecast was clear blue skies, you know, zero percent chance of rain, sunny skies. You know, we got up. Um, that was totally the case. Clear blue skies, no rain in the forecast. Uh, fast forward a few hours later. Um, we were caught in the, in the one and only flash flood that uh, I've experienced in my life. Um, and it was also the one and only time I can legitimately say that I was terrified uh, in my life. Uh, thankfully, uh, we were we were very prepared, you know, for that. Uh, in, in my in my courses, you know, people will ask me, students will ask me, you know, all the time, you know, what kind of forecasts do you see if you're going to cancel a trip, you know, and not go on a canyoneering trip? Um, and that's that's always a wonderful question. You and you tend to get you know little different answers, you know, from everyone that you you ask that question, you know, to. Um, and you know, for 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 me, you know, my threshold, you know, has gone went down a little bit, you know, after that day that I was caught in a flash flood. It's like, what what are my what are my limits? Well, uh, well, one thing that day proved to me is that regardless of the forecast. You can get caught in a flash flood, you know, clear blue, sunny skies, zero <laughs> percent chance of rain. Uh, I got caught in a flash flood. You know, a few years ago, a five and seven year old girl died in Little Wild Horse Canyon in the San Rafael Swell. Uh, I was there, uh, uh, not in Wild Horse, but a few miles away. Uh, clear blue, sunny skies, you know, um, didn't look like any concerns for a flash flood. Two little girls died. Um, you know, so 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 you know, weather weather is obviously you know a critical component uh, of that. I you know, I, I mean, many many years ago, I had been looking at the weather forecast, watching this big storm coming off of the uh, Pacific for a few days, uh, and uh, it was one of the few times that we actually canceled uh, canceled uh, all of our guided trips that day. And that that actually hasn't happened too many times, but it did that day. Uh, it just so happens that was the day that the Keyhole Seven died. Uh, you know, we we canceled we canceled all their all all of our trips. You know, they had just come out of a canyoneering course, and the next day they died. You know, in a canyon. Uh, they had been so, raining all day that day. I have no idea why they went into the canyon. Yeah. Like, uh, so yeah, weather weather is is obviously a critical element to that. But in a, in a similar fashion that I learned in in mountaineering and climbing, you know where. The summit is the objective. Uh, you know, you know, getting uh, getting to the summit is is you know optional. Getting down is mandatory. You know, and the same thing. You know, with a canyon, obviously, once you start a canyon, getting out of the canyon safely is mandatory. So I, I don't hesitate to to not do a canyon or to go do a canyon that I know to be safe. You know, and there's not a whole lot out there uh, that I know of in Utah, but there are there are a few, but. Uh, the critical elements in this experience were, uh, you know, before I started getting the wild, or as part of starting to get the wild, I'd actually spent hundreds of hours on my living room floor studying USGS seven and a half minute quadrangle, one in 24,000 know, scale topographic maps to become intimately familiar with every single route that I was doing. Uh, where are potential escape routes uh, in this canyon? You know, you know what uh, what is the distance between two contour lines that tells me that the slope angle 
you know, is 45 degrees or less, and I might be able to climb out of this canyon. You know, most most canyoners these days are, are walking around with these little, you know, electronic devices that have this tiny little screen, you know, which are incredibly right. power, powerful things for finding points on a map. But as far as seeing and discerning, you know, the intricate details of contour lines, it's not real easy on those tiny little things. Um, so even to this day, you know, I, I, I always carry a large, you know, map with me. And, and that's what saved us that day. I mean, I had gone down this canyon for the first time called Maidenwater Canyon. Uh, and, you know, we were about an hour, you know, into our journey when we started filling raindrops. We looked up the narrow little crack in the sky above us, clear blue skies, totally sunny. Then we continued on down the canyon about another seven or eight minutes. It started raining harder. You know, we ducked under an alcove uh, for a few minutes. And literally from the time where we first started filling the raindrops to this point was about 15 minutes. And it was at that point we were seeing massive waterfalls coming over the canyon rim. You know, what was a completely dry canyon, we now had flowing water uh, in it. Uh, uh fortunately i had identified potential escape routes on my topographic map uh, and we moved on down the canyon about another five minutes to a point where i thought we could exit uh, i started to try and climb out uh, at that point the slick rock was wet and slippery i couldn't get out i was able to partner assist uh, my wife melissa up and she was able to climb up with a rope uh, about 150 feet set an anchor uh, and I was able to climb up, you know, and out of the floodway. Uh, we didn't escape the canyon, but we were safely out of the floodway because I had identified, you know, this escape route in the comfort of my home before I ever, ever left home to get to the canyon. Uh, you know, most canyoneers out there don't have those resources with them. Now they're looking at the weather, you know, when it comes to flash flood, uh, but they're not, not too many of them are looking you know, at the topographic maps and have, have defined, you know, possible escape routes, exit points out of the canyon. Um, and that's a critical element of that, that question, you know, as well, is, is knowing if there are potential escapes where they're located. Yeah, that's so. That's um, good point. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, that was needless to say, um, you know, a pretty uh, pivotal moment in my canyoneering career that, uh, you know, definitely affected, you know, my decisions on on you know future right, 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 right. as far as you know preparing for for flash flood you know risks uh unfortunately yeah. i had a good story to to tell at the end of the day right. so. <laughs> my flash flood story the one and only that i've been in we were with clients and it was a 20 percent chance of light rain that day yeah. and that's when i learned exactly what 20 percent of the area gets 100 percent <laughs> of the rain Right, right. That's where that really, I know what that means now. And exactly. I no longer trust the Weather Channel app for weather. I use AccuWeather, NOAA, and like this time of year, I'll even add WeatherBug because you just never know. And I'll check like three or four different <laughs> weather yeah. sources because it's just crazy. And if there's a potential, I'm going somewhere else. I'll just go hiking or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so better to be safe than sorry <laughs> all right well canyoneering makes me really really hungry what's your favorite in canyon snack in canyon snack yeah that's evolved a bit uh over time um 
this historically, I always took um, what I called summit Rolos, but those were for you know going up mountains. When we got to the summit, we would eat Rolos. Uh, these days, it's mostly um, uh, uh, probably one of my favorites is is Mike and Ike's, but uh, but probably one of my he my healthiest go to favorite is actually mangoes. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, dry mangoes are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so overall, if given having, having to choose, I'd probably you know say say you know say mangoes because that little little bit of uh, sugar as you're moving through the day um, uh, provides some pretty nice nourishment. I find so for sure. How about your favorite after canyon beverage? After Canyon beverage, yeah, well, that's evolved a bit uh, over the w years as uh, uh, as well. So, uh, I, I I currently fit into the Michael Kelsey group on on that. That uh, uh, several years ago, uh, my body decided that uh, it, it it didn't care for alcohol anymore. So I don't I haven't I don't drink alcohol anymore. Uh, so these days, um, for many years, it's been um, Live Wire Mountain Dew. That's um, yeah, a nice, nice ice, <laughs> ice cold uh, live wire Mountain Dew. <laughs> nice. Um, what piece of gear do you always carry with you in your pack? Uh, I think the most important piece of gear that I carry is is actually up here in my head, not so much my pack, uh, but. You know, you know, asking asking about the pack, you know, specifically, you know, what would I what would I choose as the the single most important piece of gear in my pack for for canyoneering? Um, yeah, that's another one of those. Just like what's your favorite canyon? It's it's hard to <laughs> <laughs> everything. Uh, it, it's it's hard to choose just one. Um, well, you know, I could probably say my MLA pack, you know, thanks to Tom, because, you know, if you're in a, you know, a crisis situation, you can take that pack and, you know, carve it into a wide variety of, of uses, you know, for, for a lot of different things, you know, so it, it is, is quite the multi-purpose, uh, uh, multi-purpose tool, you know, um, uh, you know, that for carrying in, in my pack. And so it's the, que the question was, was it my favorite? Is that what you said? Favorite? Just the most essential piece of gear that you carry, or, or the most essential, uh, essential piece Just of something gear. Something you make sure you always have with you. Yeah, well, I mean, I always have my harness for canyoneering. So, if get, having to choose, you know, again, choosing just one is kind of hard. Maybe a maybe a maybe a, a prusik though, because those are so multi multi use. But um, yeah. yeah. You know, I don't think a lot of people know that Tom's packs, the heaps in the collab pack have like the back support. Yeah. And yeah. like pull it out. If you have to bivy in a yeah. canyon, it like unfolds. You'll have like a third of your body that has a tiny bit yeah. of a pad that you can sleep on. It also yeah, has well, backpack stays if you need like a brace for a leg or an arm or something. Exactly. And, and, and that's probably what I should go with because that's the first thing I said was, was the pack. Cause it is, it, it does have, it is multi, it is multi-use, you know, can yeah. come in handy. And I mean, even an edge protector for your rope, if you need it, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, a pot shot if you need an extra one or something. The I mean, lid yeah. will come 
the lid like will clip together so you can just put yeah. it on your belt and you can just take the lid if you don't need your whole backpack. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to go really with that. Then. that. <laughs> I'm going to go with the Emily pack then. Hopefully he'll start making them again <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, if you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? Um, yeah, I would go to Antarctica. Yeah, it's got Ooh. the you know the largest ice sheet in the world, and and once you've experienced you know alpine landscapes, you know like the North Cascades, you know North Cascades National Park has over 300 active glaciers. Once you've been to Alaska, experienced the glaciers, uh, they're one of my favorite places to explore. You know, and you know I mentioned alpine canyoneering earlier. Uh, you know, not not too many people in Washington. Uh, actually, I'm not aware of any, uh, you know, other people in Washington that go up into the Alpine and, and start, you know, these canyons from where they are born, you know, on, on the glaciers. And, and I think, you know, with Antarctica, uh, you know, the, the underside of this, uh, this ice pact, uh, uh, I remember reading, you know, scientists have seen, like, I forget what it is, like 16 billion uh, I think it's gallons, maybe, I, I don't know the unit, um, uh, of space has been removed under these, under this ice sheet, you know, due to global warming and the melting, you know, of the ice sheet. And it's created some just incredibly mm -hmm. fabulous, you know, caves and canyon canyons, you know, under this ice sheet. Uh, and that's where that's where I kind of always think, you know, is like, I mean, and I've certainly never heard of anybody canyoneering in Antarctica. I don't know if you have, but, <laughs> you know, but, but those are the kind of things that I that I think of, you know, going you know, boldly where, you know, no one has gone before. I think it would be really I've always I actually had an opportunity in graduate school to go uh, to Antarctica and do graduate research there. But I accepted a different project. Uh, so I've always kind of wanted to go there. So I think I would go there, you know, because, again, uh, it would be just a, an amazing, you know, place to go canyoneer for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> first descent in yeah. Antarctica. That sounds cool. Never thought of Antarctica. Hmm. All right. Well, is there any safety advice you would like to leave our listeners with before we say goodbye? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, if, if, if you've taken one of my courses, you know, students and, and of course our our guides and instructors, you know, they probably get sick of me hearing this, um, you know, but um, as, as I mentioned earlier on what's the most essential thing in my pack, you know, one of the first things I think about is what's in your head, because I think, you know, you know, our wisdom, you know, and knowledge, you know, is so important to keeping us, you know, safe, uh, safe out in the canyons. And um, as, as part of that, you know, one of the things uh, that I have found uh, in technical sports in general and definitely in canyoneering um, is never making any assumptions. Uh, many years ago, I took the word assumption and I threw it over the proverbial cliff, you know, out of my out of my vocabulary, because as soon as as soon as people start making assumptions, that's when things can start going wrong and that so many different things fit into that you know, category. I mean, uh, if, most of us are familiar with, you know, heuristic traps, you know, these repetitive things, you know, that we do uh, all the time, uh, you know, and if, if you're going out with a group of, of canyoneers and you're all good friends and you've known each other for years and you've been out in canyons hundreds of times, it's easier to 
to look at your buddy and assume that he's got everything, you know, fastened and attached, you know, correctly and that he's doing, he or she is doing, you know, everything properly. Uh, these days, one of the biggest places that concern me has to do with beta. Uh, you know, I, I get I get contacted pretty regularly by people that actually aren't planning to even go out on a trip for, with me at all, but they ask, can you give me some information on such and such a canyon? Um, also our students, you know, I, I have people that go out on a course with us and they're planning to go do, you know, heaps the heaps as soon as they do the course or something, or, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's extreme. They're, they're planning to go doing some technical canyoneering route right after the course. And of course, the first thing I'm thinking is, well, shouldn't you figure out whether you're, whether you're ready, you know, yeah, you know, right. I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't think a you know a three-day introduction to technical canyoneering course is going to quite teach you everything you need to know to go do you know your first canyon. Uh, yeah, just the other day, you know, somebody asked me, "Can you give me? I'm you know we're taking your course you know next fall, and can you give me some routes you know in the area that we can do you know after the course?" Uh, and I gave her name of some routes, and then she followed up. Uh, can you give me the beta, you know, for these routes? I found some beta for this one and this one and this one, but I didn't find beta for that one. Uh, and over-reliance on beta these days, I think is, is, is a really important thing because a lot of people out there just simply won't go do a canyon unless they have the beta for it. And mm. of course, beta is only as good as the day it was written you know, and a lot of beta out there is getting getting pretty old. And matter of fact, I don't know if you heard, but last last fall, the Hanksville area had a historic uh, flash Huge flood burn. event, which destroyed you know multiple businesses and homes uh, in the area, and it forever changed many of the canyons out there. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you go in on the internet and uh, look on what's arguably the most popular canyoneering beta website right now not much of that information is right. correct anymore uh after, yeah. I mean, last last fall's floods i went through a canyon that had had massive boulders as anchors for the, the 25 years i've been going to that canyon giant boulders some of them as big as a vehicle that have been there ever since i started they're completely gone, gone. yeah Com I mean, the forces that went through those canyons last fall is, is hard to imagine. So if if you're looking at beta and you're making assumptions, mm -hmm. hey, all so this stuff Beta differs is from cool. reality. You always go with reality. Um, so anyway, the, yeah, I mean, the making no assumptions, you know, you know applies to a lot of things. I mean, if you, if you find a, you know, a Karen anchor or a Deadman anchor sitting there, you know, are you going to, you know, are you going to assume everything's good? there you know yeah. uh, so that 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 falls you know, a lot of things fall into that category but you know for me you know just be very cautious you know if you're in a situation where you're making having to make an assumption about something because uh, that can get you really quick yeah definitely i agree well said well i think that the canyons are calling and we should probably go Okay, that concludes my interview with Christopher Hagedorn and Get in the Wild Adventures. If you'd like to reach out to Christopher, you can do that at Christopher at GetInTheWild.com or you can go to their website, um, GetInTheWild.com. He's also on Facebook at GetInTheWild and on Instagram at GetInTheWild. So go check out Get in the Wild. Get some more courses, get some 
some new canyons in, <laughs> see some beautiful places, tell all your new friends, whatever. <laughs> anyway, it sounds awesome to be able to live in two different states and explore all of the best canyons in both of those states, the most secluded ones with the least people. We just spent a week on Boulder Mountain, and let me tell you, that place is incredible and not a lot of people, so I love seclusion. <laughs> anyway, if you enjoy the show, please review and rate it on Spotify, Apple, and share it with your friends. Um, you can also reach out to me like Christopher and so many other people have at thecanyonsarecalling at gmail.com if you have any ideas for the show or if you would like to share your stories. I'm trying to do a flash flood series, so if you have a story about a flash flood, please get a hold of me and let me know so we can share some of those stories and try to get people thinking better about flash flood decisions in canyons here in the Zion and Colorado Plateau area where flash floods are scary crazy and super dangerous. If you enjoy this beautiful music in the background, shout out to Chris Zollinger Z the handpan man. I absolutely love still drums. So I was super stoked when he said that I could use his music. Also, Tig Booth does the intro in the very beginning, and my grandkids do the little Canyons Are Calling Let's Go part, which is super awesome. Shout out to Connor and Ashes. Anyway, the Canyons Are Calling. I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs>